if the management is not acting as a role model, then how can you ask the people, you know, to 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 behave accordingly to the company culture? So uh, I think we are a, a quite a small management team of all in all maybe 20 people, but they know exactly what we want, what culture we want to have, what we expect from our uh, employees in return, what we as a company can give to our employees to make them happy and to make them feel comfortable and to contribute with uh, with their full enthusiasm. Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. Here's your host, Sylvan. Adrian, you're very well welcome to the Swisspreneur Show. It's a pleasure to have you as a guest today. No, thank you uh, to give me this opportunity to be here today. You are the co-owner and CEO at Designwork Technologies, an electromobility one-stop shop. You actually spent, before you joined that company, you spent 13 years, that's two digit, working for Swissport and then four more years handling a management buyout for them before joining DesignWork as CEO in 2018. What sort of prompted this change for you? Because that was, I assume, a big step to change from, you know, after all these years. Well, first of all, you call me CEO. For me, CEO is a too large word. You know, okay. I see myself rather than a than a circus uh, director uh, or, or a lion tamer, if you want, uh, because, you know, at the time when we started, we were like 25 people. I was number 26. So uh, it all started very small. Uh, but it's true to switch from a manager to an entrepreneur. Uh, the, origin, the origin was actually that uh, given by this opportunity to take over a company in France by my previous employer. And to do this, you know, you had your entrepreneurial sort of test drive then, so to speak. Did you always want to be an entrepreneur or did that thought sort of grow in you over time? Yeah, this was, uh, I discovered it, I would say, yeah. uh, because uh, there's a big difference between being a manager or an entrepreneur. I mean, uh, small is beautiful. Uh, and I always say, you know, uh, you know that you're an entrepreneur when you earn less, that when you work harder and you sleep worse. <laughs> uh, and still, you do it. Uh, it's less politics. It's a short communication and decision-making process. And in our case, at least, it is uh, much more agility. Is it also more rewarding for you personally? Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, we have a small team. Uh, you see what you have done when you go home at the evening, in the evening. And so, uh, yeah, it's a kind of like building a house, you know. Uh, you see, in our case, you see the trucks in the uh, in the halls, in the assembly halls. Uh, you see the charges that are leaving the the company, and it's not that I that screw that's inside the charger is is from me, but uh, it's kind of uh, we built the house to do that. I want to talk about the year 2018 when you actually joined DesignWork as CEO or Chief Circus Officer. DesignWork has been around for already 10 years. It has been founded in 2008, so. Rumor has it that it all started because of an 80-day all-electric world record circumnavigation. Please tell us about that story, the origin. Yeah, that's uh, absolutely true. I mean, the two company founders, Frank and Tobias, uh, they started the whole story with a tour around the world. Uh, they wanted to prove that it goes electric already 15 years ago. And uh, they were participating in a race that uh, was called in 80 days around the world. Uh, not only that they won the race, but they came back with a lot of impressions. One of the impressions was there are more uh, uh, electric outlets than uh, gas stations in the world. So everywhere where there's civilization, there is basically electricity available. And this was the starting point. 
And for you to come from the outside, basically, how was that for you? How did you, you know, get interested in joining Design Work as a as a CEO? Well, I think the company founders they they notice that they are very good engineers and very good industrial designers, but maybe they're not the best entrepreneurs in the sense that they they're lacking the background, the financial background, and the uh, the economical background. And this was basically my moment to come in and my point to join the team. So they were kind of lacking this economical um, uh, piece in, in the whole puzzle, you know, and. Uh, not only that they noticed and they acknowledged that they are lacking that, but they also accepted somebody new to come in. This is not always easy for company founders because usually that's their babies. Absolutely. And uh, so I was lucky in finding this uh, constellation of people that would allow somebody to come in. And how did that work? Did you already know the founders before that or did you sort of just got introduced to them when they were actually actively looking for someone? How how did you meet, basically? Yeah, this is uh, like in, usually in life, you know, it went around seven corners. Uh, I didn't know them before, uh, but I knew somebody who knew somebody who knew them. Yeah. And I was just coming back from uh, from uh, my adventure in France. I was looking for something from new opportunity, from new challenge in, uh, in Switzerland. Mm -hmm. And uh, it came across uh, through a few cor corners. Fantastic. And you said... They were open, which is already a hard thing for founders to let someone else in to run their baby. How did you sort of also manage to get a good deal? Because in the end, you're also an entrepreneur yourself. And you probably also wanted to have some shares of the company to participate in the upside. Well, it all started with the fact that they couldn't pay me a real salary. Yeah. So this was the point where I saw the potential of the company and I said, okay, this is going to be a growth story that we are going to see. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's why we agreed to a kind of a very low salary, but combined with shares. And just out of curiosity, you don't need to name specific numbers, but did you also you know, put your own money, uh, skin in the game to purchase shares? Or was that sort of part of the of the salary, basically? It was a, a combination. So uh, a part of the shares were given to me, granted to me, and for another part I paid. So uh, it was a mix. And he said they couldn't afford to pay you, you know, a regular market standard salary. Back in the day when they started, were they sort of a bit ahead of the trend? Because now, of course, we all realize we need to act. Climate change is here, so we need to look for alternatives. When they started in 2008, the world looked a bit different. That wasn't as present as it is now. Were they a bit ahead of the time to have success in a business sense? I would go further than that. I think they were not a bit ahead of the time. I think they were <laughs> largely ahead of the time. Uh, because even when, I, even when I started there five years ago, I remember very well the first fair where we presented a full electric, battery electric truck. I mean, we were at the corner at this fair. Nobody was, nobody was looking at us and some were laughing. How can it be? How, how, how can it ever work? Where is the energy coming from? What are we doing with the battery? Some questions still remain today, but I think the standing is a completely different one today. Yeah. Luckily, so the time has caught up basically. Definitely. So design work produces batteries, electric trucks, and also chargers. And we know that from the production side, e-vehicles produce more CO2 than the diesel vehicles. Do they make up for it from the consumer side? 
Uh, yeah, definitely. So from a CO2 uh, balance uh, over the lifetime, it is uh, definitely true that the manufacturing process of an electric vehicle takes more energy, for the, especially for the battery. Uh, but this is uh, very, very quickly compensated. So one could say that over the lifetime, the electric vehicle produces between 60 and 90% less CO2 uh, from cradle to grave. Now, why is this span so big between 60 and 90? It's quite a, quite a big span. Right. Uh, the, the reason behind it is that uh, the, 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 the balance largely depends on the, the way the energy is produced that you use to drive. That's or in true. other words, if you, if you drive with a clean energy, uh, then you save up to 90% CO2. If you take, for example, a German mix with some coal uh, that is still <laughs> needed to produce electric energy, then you end up with something like 60%. Fair point. But still, it's a big impact that you have right there. Definitely. A another thing that I quickly want to talk about is your batteries. They are usually made of nickel, manganese, cobalt, and lithium. Where do you source those? Because that can be a big sustainability challenge on its own. That's a fair point. Uh, in the past, we, we have been working with BMW modules. Uh, BMW is, a, is definitely a manufacturer that is paying a lot of attention on uh, ethical standards and envi environmental standards. Um, currently, uh, our modules are from uh, China. But uh, of course, we expect our suppliers as well to, to, to fulfill the common standards. We are part of the Volvo group, meanwhile. Uh, they own 60%, so the majority stays with Volvo. So we are somewhat as well bound to the corporate governance and requirements that the Volvo group has. But And on top, you could also say that the trend definitely goes into the direction where we are with new chemistry, with new technology, that uh, the sensitive um, materials that are used in the batteries today will more and more disappear over time. Got it. And one aspect there is, of course, the sustainability aspect, but then often, you know, the production of lithium and cobalt mining is also riddled with child labor, for example. That's also a big challenge for you as a company, right? Because you cannot always be there yourself on the ground. So how do you make sure that, you know, you don't have child labor in your production supply chain? Yeah, this is a, a big challenge because it's, as you say, we cannot go to Africa and verify whether or not, you know, the cobble that is coming out from from, from the earth is uh, is uh, has been produced with child labor. What we can do certainly as a, a Swiss-based company is that we... we rely and we insist uh, to a certain extent we insist on um, uh, qualifications on uh, proof of origin uh, statements uh, that are confirmed by our suppliers so it's very much also trust and as much control as you can do yourself so a mix basically yeah i would say it's a bit more than just trust because uh, we we really tied up you know in in some supplier agreements in some uh delivery uh, conditions uh we we nail it down mm -hmm. but ultimately to control it whether or not it, is it is it really produced in a proper way or without child labor without modern slavery and so on and so on uh this is uh, unfortunately very very hard uh, to follow as well the path of the materials right I also want to talk about your product line. So we talked about trucks, for example, that you help to produce. And have you ever considered to also go in a different sector like electric public transport, for example? Yeah, we've looked into that as well, uh, but we decided to, uh, to stick to the trucks. Uh, it's not 
we don't we not only have trucks but we also have batteries uh, as a as a product line and we have the chargers so we are already diversi- diversified to a certain extent but i think as a small company with uh, with 200 people we also have to stay focused you know if you are investing uh, too much energy into uh, new opportunities you risk to get lost very soon and then ultimately you have nothing i fully agree with that are trucks also economically more viable than, for example, public transport buses, for example? Yeah, they are, because uh, actually the utility vehicles, they are driven much more, for example, as well than a bus or uh, much more as well, definitely, than a private car. Mm-hmm. Uh, because um, we have some customers that are driving up to 250,000 kilometers per year, mm-hmm. and a truck consumes like, uh, even a modern truck consumes like 30 liters on uh, 100 kilometers. So you can imagine that, you know, if you operate one truck, yeah. Uh, you save up to, let's say, 60,000, 70,000 liters of uh, diesel a year. Wow. Yeah, that's crazy. Talking about gas, you know, when you run out of gas, you have to go to the gas stations. In your case, you run out of battery. Where and how do the trucks and the batteries get charged? That's a very, very important point that you raise here, uh, because we are of the opinion that we are not selling a vehicle. We are not only selling a truck, we are selling a system. Mm-hmm. And this system is called electromobility. And uh, the second question always of a customer is, how do I get it charged? Exactly. And that's why we offer a system. We offer our own chargers. We are working in collaborations with some manufacturers like ABB, like Siemens, uh, like Alpitronic, who are producers of fixed install stations. Uh, and uh, with this, we can offer basically not only the solution to drive, but as well to operate the whole system. How do I have to envision that? You then have like charging stations or, you know, who complete that system all over the world or how, how do you do that? Normally, our customers, they invest not only in the truck, but as well in the charging infrastructure at their home base. Yeah. Uh, and in actually in quite the num- numerous cases, it is sufficient to charge overnight. Yeah. For example, the whole public sector, you know, they, they are not working during the night in any way. In, in, in most of the European countries, we have a night ban uh, where um, trucks are not allowed to drive. So usually you have kind of a, a rest time uh, during the night uh, of some eight hours or so. And uh, most of them, most of our customers are uh, charging at their home base. Okay, got it. And if I think about trucks, you know, I think about the truck driver basically doing a long, long route and then having to stop somewhere to sleep in the truck. That would be challenging in that case, right? Yeah, that's as well a very important point that you're touching upon because I think the success of electromobility on the long haul fleet is going together with the infrastructure of being capable to charge the trucks. We have a range with our trucks of up to 750 kilometers with a full payload. But uh, it's true that, you know, there are some applications, some use cases where you need uh, an infrastructure in fast changing, in fast charging stations, uh, at least along the main trunk routes. Right. Is that also something that you're looking more deeply into? Yeah, this would be uh, a project that is um, would take too much of engagement or too much of means, uh, too much of money uh, f- from for a, a small company that we are. But again, we are their part of the Volvo Group. And the uh, Volvo Group, uh, we know that they have a project uh, together with uh, other car ma- truck manufacturers. And therefore, um, we think that uh, the big, the large manufacturers will take care of a solid infrastructure on a European level. Amazing. 
talking about the battery charging, at one point they are end of life, so they have to basically get replaced. What happens to the old electric batteries? So first of all, the, the battery will survive the vehicle. So the batteries, they are um, built for maybe 15 years. Well, that's uh, much longer than I would have expected. No, that's, uh, that's uh, I would say, state of the art today. Yeah. And uh, after 15 years, they have something have like uh, 80% uh, of uh, still available energy that is usable. And then the question is, what do we do with batteries? Then we have two options. Mm -hmm. One option is uh, to use them in another application, uh, so-called Second Life. Mm -hmm. uh, it could be a stationary, for example, application uh, linked to solar panels or something like that. Or if this is not viable, then uh, we just recycle them. Re recycling today means we are shredding them. And we can uh, recover uh, between, depending on who you ask and which study you, you, you read, but between 92 and 96% of the raw materials can be taken back. Wow, that's also much higher than I would have expected. Fantastic. I also want to talk about some challenges that you have seen and experienced along the way. The first one, you have actually grown tremendously with design work. Over the past five years, I think your turnover increased 11-fold. What were the biggest challenges and the strongest growing pains that you had to overcome? Everything. <laughs> but if you had to cluster it, I would say that it's uh, it's four points. Uh, it is uh, people, to get the right people on board. Yeah. Uh, the second one is uh, structure and processes. As the company grows, uh, we had to change our processes, uh, a minimum of uh, as well approval processes, for example, internally. Mm -hmm. uh, the third one is cash. When you're growing so fast, this ties up a lot of cash, and especially in the capital-intense business that we are in. And uh, the fourth is maybe a bit of a temporary um, case or temporary story, availability of material. Yeah. When we started our production in 2019, which was one year uh, before COVID. And uh, COVID, of, of course, changed the rules when it comes to availability and lead times for materials. Well, m many challenges. I want to start at the top with the people, but also sort of the processes. I think that goes into the similar direction, your company culture. How did you keep up and really actively also shape your company culture with all that growth that you've seen? Yeah, that's a challenge, definitely. Uh, we are very selective in hiring new people. We are in the lucky position that despite the Fachkräftemangel, uh, we, we are in the lucky position that uh, many people want to work for design work mm -hmm. uh, because apparently we offer an attractive uh, product. We offer an att attractive uh, company culture and uh, we pay a lot of attention of whom we are hiring, uh, which means that uh, every employee uh, has to be seen by uh, either the company founders or the minority shareholders. Yeah, that makes sense. And then when someone is actually in the company, how do you make sure you know that they are not only a good fit in the selection process, but actually are a good fit through and through? Because things can change, especially as you grow as a company. Some people from the early days might not be the best fit anymore now with, with all the growth and the changes. Yeah, true. Uh, and that's why we pay a lot of attention uh, as well on the management level, yeah. because we believe that uh, if the management is not acting as a role model, uh, then how can you ask the people, you know, to, to, to behave accordingly to the company culture? So uh, I think we are a, a quite a small management team uh, of all in all, maybe 20 people, mm -hmm. but they know exactly uh, what we want, what culture we want to have, what we expect from our uh, employees in return, what we as a company can give to our employees to make them happy and to make them feel comfortable and to contribute with uh, with their full enthusiasm. 
and talking about this organizational structure, how did you set up the company? What sort of are the key areas that you focus on also on a management level to say, hey, these are the areas, the departments, the teams that we need to be productive and to be able to do the best job? There are some key positions, of course, but um, this changes a little bit as well every six months, I have to say. Right. Um, but uh, I would say that we have some core activities. And I mean, as a producing company, you cannot say we are strengthening sales, but we are not strengthening engineering or we are not strengthening production because ultimately the weakest link in the chain makes the performance of the whole company. So uh, be it engineering, be it procurement, be it production, be it sales, be it after sales, uh, we have defined uh, some, some key areas, but they all belong to it. And uh, they are somewhat... Um, it's very important that they work uh, together on one hand, but as well that they understand very much what their role in the company is. I like the statement that you just said, the weakest performing area or team will basically determine the performance of the whole company. I think that's a very refreshing perspective to have and also shows you that you need to push all levels to a certain standard to be able to perform at the high level as a whole company. Uh, that's a, a super valid and super important point. I mean, uh, I can give you the example, you know, uh, we, we had some issues with our after sales. Mm -hmm. uh, and we noticed that, you know, the first truck you sell through sales, but the second, the third and the fourth and the 20th, you sell through after sales. So right. uh, if, if, if you don't perform in after sales, it, it doesn't help because yeah. uh, you will have angry customers. You will have customers that don't believe in the, in the, in the product or in you in the as company. And therefore, uh, everybody has to perform. That's, that's definitely true. How do you then specifically tackle that? Like, no need to go into specifics, but how do you then make sure that the performance was being lifted in that after-sales department? I mean, besides the regular uh, exchange that we have on management level and in the bilateral talks and topics that we are discussing, uh, that I think we have uh, some topics that are popping up. And uh, this is, the, I think, the prioritization of these, the joint prioritization, what is important today, where we have to put our focus today, on Monday, on Tuesday, on Wednesday, on Friday, next month, and so on. Uh, this makes the difference ultimately, because you cannot solve everything at the same time, and not everything is, uh, is, is urgent the same way. But I think what is uh, important is that you, you understand what the priorities are, and then you put a lot of efforts to, to fix them and to sort them out, and then you can go to the next. Yeah. And I'm also curious to see how you as a chief circus officer are communicating and sort of helping to align the whole company, you know, to walk in the same direction, because that gets incredibly more complex as you grow as a company. How do you communicate? Do you hold any like all hands meetings? Do you prepare any written monthly updates to the team? How do you make sure that you keep communicating with everyone in the company? Uh, first of all, I'm in the company almost every day. Mm -hmm. I'm walking through the company, through the different areas of the company almost every day. Then, of course, we have a regular communication uh, through the management team, but as well uh, with the employees. I have, uh, I call it weekly news. In reality, it's a bi-weekly news. So every second week, I, I write something on Friday evening. Uh, what was what is important for the company, uh, what has happened the past two weeks, uh, what is going to happen in the next two weeks. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the, from the feedback from the people, this is highly appreciated. Uh, when I miss it, because, for example, I'm on vacation, then people start to write, uh, when are the weekly news coming? So <laughs> That's a uh, good sign. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, the beauty is uh, that we are still 
quite small, you know, with 200 employees, you know every face, you know almost every name. Uh, and with this, uh, when you walk around, you, you, you kind of easily can get under the skin of the people. Nice. I like that. Now, I also want to talk about what happened in 2021. Volvo acquired a 60% stake in design work. Why did they propose this and why did you guys say yes to that? Well, to the first question, I, I asked them as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because I remember very well the first uh, visit from Volvo. Uh, this was uh, a group uh, executive management member that was visiting us. And I was exactly raising this question. Why are you interested in buying the company? Uh, because uh, how many engineers do you have? And he said 13,000. I said, okay, we have 20. <laughs> At the time, we only had 20. Uh, but his answer was uh, crystal clear. Because you're the sports boat. Yeah. And we are a large mothership. And the combination of these two companies uh, make a perfect match. In other words, uh, I think that DesignWorks should never produce 10,000 trucks per year. But should we produce prototypes, concept trucks? Should we cover a niche demand in the market? Yes, a very clear yes. And this combination out of the two companies makes it so valuable. Absolutely. And why was it then for you also the right step to say, hey, we want to have Volvo as a partnered owner, basically, compared to going the way alone? A clear yes as well, because, um, you know, when you're a small company, you are sometimes perceived to be weak. And this is the case because you are weak. Mm -hmm. So uh, Volvo gave us very clearly robustness, stability, uh, a long-lasting future, credibility, and last but not least as well, support. Mm-hmm. Uh, how can you imagine that a small company uh, opens a European network for after-sales stations? They don't. Yeah. They are not in a position to. And that's why, for example, Volvo is our partner throughout the European network. In all their countries, they are present as uh, after-sales partners. So that's probably one thing that has changed since the, you know, sort of ownership change. What else has changed since Volvo is on board? Um, they supported us when we called them, for example, for quality expert. Nice. We wanted them to know and to tell us how you improve the quality in the production process. Now, of course, their production is not quite the same as we are doing, but still there are some principles uh, that they uh, were showing us how they treat, how they look at quality, for example, at a truck. Uh, so this is definitely something where they were contributing um, very valuable inputs uh, to us. The rest, I have to say, has not changed that much. Okay. In other words, they have understood that the value of design work is to remain small, mm-hmm. to have this short communication and decision-making processes, and not to overload design work with some corporate uh, things and corporate governance and corporate uh, uh, structures, let's say. Uh, and I think uh, this is a very mature performance of Volvo of not doing that. Fantastic. And it seems to be a really great setup that you take the best out of both worlds to a certain degree. Yes. And how is this for you as co-owner and CEO? You know, before you probably had more shares before Volvo came in. Now you sold at least parts of them. Did anything change in, you know, your feeling, feeling less of an owner of the company or feeling less motivated now that you have less skin in the game? No, not at all, because uh, we still own 40%. 
first of all. So it's uh, quite an important minority, first sure. of all. Uh, and secondly, I mean, uh, it's it's all about the question of having a, a large stake at a small cake or having a small stake at a large cake. Yeah. And uh, we believe that for the development of the company, it was good to have a strategical investor. Yeah. And uh, we would do the same uh, again, definitely. And if you look at when you came in, you came in to bring in the business side to really also make sure that there's business knowledge and business processes, etc., to really grow the commercial, the business side, striking the steel of Volvo only sort of three years after you joined. That was spot on and very fast executed. We pushed them. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> I think uh, it's all about timing. Yeah. And uh, I said at the beginning of the interview that, you know, the two company owners and company founders, yeah. uh, they, they, are, they were open to accept to enter somebody in. Mm-hmm. And it was a kind of like a second step approach where we, we all realized, the minority shareholders today, they realized that it will be good to have somebody strong besides the sports boat. Because sometimes, you know, weather can be stormy, waters can be rough. Yeah. And uh, for these occasions, it's very good to have a stable uh, uh, harbor uh, being Volvo for us. Absolutely. Especially also in terms of the supply chain challenges that you mentioned that happened during COVID and many more reasons. When you look back, when you joined in 2018 and the key initiatives and changes that you brought to the company with you and your team, you know, what were sort of the, the key points that now made this deal with Volvo possible? Because my assumption from the outside is in 2018, this deal would have probably not been possible. It's a very good question because um, ultimately, I think it was um, the combination between engineering works and producing some prototypes that are visible, that are driving on the streets, that made uh, Volvo and others attract. And um, ultimately, I mean, there are many engineering companies in the world, in electromobility, there are many manufacturers in the world, uh, but I think the combination makes us a little bit unique. Was there also some fear might be the, the wrong word, but you basically proved and delivered what you can build, what your engineering teams can build. It was driving out there on the street, Of course, Volvo didn't see you as competitive just due to the size, but at the same time, you could have taken some market share for them with your, you know, innovative solutions. Was there also some fear from Volvo or was it a pure strategic synergies play? Yeah, I think with the volumes that we are producing, uh, I think they have never seen us, as you just said, uh, never seen us as a competitor. I mean... We are producing today 120 trucks a year. Uh, Volvo is uh, producing hundred thousands of. Uh, so therefore, uh, I think this was not the, the, their main motivation. I think uh, their main motivation was to have somebody that can act quickly, mm-hmm. uh, that is opposite to the Volvo organization, that is very strong, but in the same time, very slow, that they have somebody, you know, who can act and who can uh, try out new technologies, who can build a prototype, who can act as an accelerator of technology, basically, and to try it out, to do concepts and stuff like this. Amazing. So it really makes sense from a strategic perspective. I think so, yes. You're probably not allowed to talk about that, but what did that mean financially? Having Volvo, you know, coming in as new owner for the company, for design work, but also for you personally. For the company, uh, it is, uh, as I said before, it gave us some robustness yeah. uh, when talking to uh, some 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 uh, banks, for example. You you can always, of course, you have uh, you can emphasize that somebody very strong is is uh, at our back. Mm-hmm. 
for me personally, um, I would say th there has not much, nothing has much changed, you know, uh, because when you're an entrepreneur, you're not striving for the money. No. You believe in what you do. You get up in the morning to change the world, uh, to 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 lead the people, to talk to the people, to have fun together. Sometimes it's of course less fun. Sometimes it's super super exhausting and it's super super demanding and challenging. But overall, I would say this is what makes the difference. Definitely not the money. But still, it's cool if a plan works out, right? That's also satisfying when you know, hey, we hit this milestone and we achieved something nice together. Yeah, but it's good that a plan works, but not for the money, but sure. for the fact that, you know, it is success. You can be successful. You did more right decisions than wrong decisions, apparently. Absolutely. So now we're also curious to see what's next. Now with Volvo as a new co-owner or owner, what do you have planned together? What are sort of the next milestones that you want to hit together? The company will continue to grow. Um we have four different product lines. One is the truck, two is the Georges, three is the batteries, and four, we are still an engineering company. And uh, the trucks is quite dominating today. Mm -hmm. And we see a lot of potential in the battery in the Georgia business. We are introducing the megawatt charger uh, early next year, the first prototype. Um, and this puts us on the next level of fast charging because we believe that this will be key to be successful in the future and in battery electric mobility uh, because, of course, we can do the batteries larger, but there is a limit to everything and its cost and its weight and its raw materials and everything. So uh, ultimately, we believe that the combination between size of the batteries uh, and uh, charging speeds will make uh, the race. Amazing. And for you personally, you plan to stay on board for a little bit? Of course. I mean, as long as uh, I see the growth potential and as long as my skills and my, my personality um, are needed and matches to design work, uh, I, I will be there. Uh, Volvo, Volvo is an excellent partner, you know, giving us a, a stronger and, uh, and, and uh, a new perspective. Mm -hmm. And uh, what is very clear for me, I will certainly not get retired. Now it's anyway too early, <laughs> but even when 65, uh, I don't think that I will go on vacation for the rest of my life. You love being an entrepreneur too much. Absolutely. <laughs> That's fantastic. So to wrap up the conversation today, I also have some rapid fire questions for you. I either give you different options to choose from or a short question you have to answer in one sentence. You ready? Absolutely. What do you drive personally? A Tesla Model S. Nice. What does money mean to you? Freedom and independence. I like that. What was your first electric car? Also the same Tesla? It's Tesla Model S. Nice. What's your biggest ecological sin? Traveling. Yeah. And what's the best quality for a CEO to have? You mean a circus director? A circus director, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Ambition and authenticity. I like that. Adrian, thank you so much for coming on the show and for the high energy. I love the conversation. Best of luck and success for the future. Thank you very much for having me. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, you can support us by rating our show on Apple Podcasts. This way, we can reach an ever-growing number of aspiring entrepreneurs. <laughs>